loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Marvin Much. Marvin's a formerly incarcerated prison reform activist and co-founder of Brothers Keepers at San Quentin State Prison. Mr. Much served 41 years of an indeterminate seven-year-to-life sentence for a wrongful conviction suffered in 1975. In 1977, he formed the Men's Advisory Council, a prison advocacy group first established inside San Quentin to represent the collective needs and grievances of California's prisoners. Marvin was freed in 2016 due to the tireless efforts of Professor Heidi Rummel of the USC Post-Conviction Justice Project, Professor Emerita Susan Rutberg from the Golden Gate University Innocence Project, and Attorney Michael Snedeker of Snedeker and Short. After a lifetime of experience in this work, Marvin's now set to apply his deep understanding towards advancing the human rights of incarcerated people everywhere. He's currently the Associate Director of the Humane Prison Hospice Project and Director of Advocacy at the Prisoner Reentry Network. Welcome, Marvin. Hey, how you doing? Um, I'm gonna. I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, start from the assumption that a lot of listeners out there have a very limited uh, understanding of the prison system, um, how things go, uh, and also of how people end up in positions like yours, you know? How does that happen? Because mm-hmm. we we all want to pretend that, the well, not all of us, but we would love if we could pretend that the justice system is just. And so I wondered if you could start just by saying um, kind of what your early life was like and what, from your view, uh, put you in the way of such a of, of such an experience, such a wrongful incarceration? Just tell us some of the story. Well, it's um, I always start uh, when I talk about my young life. I I start with my mother's. Um, my mother's a Holocaust survivor. She's eighty two years old. And we're just now beginning to to figure out that the uh, effects of the Holocaust and her internment are intergenerational. It affects many generations beyond uh, her own. And she was born in 1935 uh, to a Jewish mother and a Romanian father. She was born in Hebron in a country now known as Israel. Uh, her father in 1937 took her and his pregnant wife to Romania, and by 1941, uh, the war had overtaken the family, and uh, while my six-year-old mother was able to hide, uh, her family was killed, uh, and uh, my mother was for a time able to 
hide out in the basement of an abandoned church until she was eventually found and taken in by a sheltering family. And within months, the entire household was seized and interned in uh, a camp in uh, Trans- Transnistria, I believe it's called. Uh, at war's end, she was liberated from the camp and brought by missionaries to an orphanage in Yakima, Washington. And she remained at the orphanage until 1955, when at the age of 18, she met my father. I was born. Uh, and uh, after the birth of my sister in 1958, my parents divorced. And, you know, she was left to somehow manage her young life, mm. provide for her two children. Uh, um, but uh, because of her internment, because of her experience as a child in camps, she had a lot of uh, physical uh, issues. And uh, I, was, I spent quite a bit of time in foster care. Uh, and so by the time I was six years old, I was a ward of the court, and I was in, I was in foster care quite a bit. And um, uh, eventually I, that turned into uh, experiencing boys' homes and uh, children's shelters and other things that are uh, part and parcel of the whole juvenile justice system that children find themselves in. And uh, one of the places I was in... Uh, First of all, let me say that the foster care system uh, is horribly broken, just like uh, the prison system and the juvenile justice system. Uh, yes. It's horribly broken. And there's people who have care and custody of children and have no business having care and custody of children. But um, uh, I, re- I was involved with a, a group home in Santa Clara County called because of youth, and one of the things that happened there is that whenever there was a an issue in the neighborhood, some kind of crime, they would come down to the group home and take all of the young boys down to the police station and put us in rooms and have victims look in these windows to see if we were involved in oh. you know, any manner of crimes. And uh, they would they would note in your juvenile file on this day, uh, Mr. Much was suspected of burglary on this day mr much was suspected of assault on this day i was 11 years old at this time but my juvenile file ended up um over the dozen times that they did that uh my juvenile file ended up looking uh quite ominous so um it wasn't until years later that i realized the effect of that because uh once i was 18 years old and i had just gotten a job uh, as a security guard, uh, and my mother was in the hospital, and I was taking care of my three sisters, and I was trying to get money for food. Uh, and in the course of, uh, of um, investigating the crime that I eventually went to prison on, the first thing they did was look at my juvenile file, and they saw this this um, horrible track record of of mm. suspected crimes. And so uh, what I found uh, over the years as I researched how I had gotten to prison, I found that the system is self-perpetuating. It eats its young, and it creates at one level what it needs for the next. And uh, all I can say is that every young man that I ever met in foster care, I met in prison later. 
And so there's something wrong. Uh, and mm. I can't explain beyond that. It's just the natural consequence of being involved with um, the juvenile justice system that early in your life. Yes. And, you know, although it wouldn't be relevant uh, in lots of places to say this, I think it is uh, of note that you're a white person. Um, right. You know, it's prob- it's amplified perhaps for kids um, growing up with all of those factors who are also kids of color, but it's not restricted, right. not restricted to children of color. It's um, poverty, foster care, um, mm-hmm. inadequate support that then creates this picture of you as a bad kid. Yes. Right. Well, you know, it kind of proves out a, a, an unpopular theory that I have. Uh, in my in my estimation, it's really not a theory because I have uh, uh, pertinent data and uh, and um, evidence based uh, um, cause and effect that uh, that prove it out. Uh, in 1852, California built its first prison, and over the next 130 years, they built 11 prisons, and there was 26,000 people in prison. 130 plus years, they got to the point where they had 11 prisons and 26,000 people. In '84, when the Cold War was winding down and uh, people were flowing out of the military bases that were closing, and they were coming out of that economy into the civilian economy, they needed a place for these people to go to work. They needed some way to replace that lost economy. So they started the whole rhetoric about uh, war, in, war on fill-in-the-blanks, you know, drugs, mm. gangs, violence, uh, guns. And uh, they started tweaking the penal code sentencing uh, uh, structures, and they started building prisons in 1984. Between 84 and 94, California built 22 prisons, and they went from 26,000 people to 174,000 people in prison. Mm. And it be, last fiscal year, last fiscal year, California spent thirteen billion dollars running those thirty-three prisons. So um, I always tell people that well, mass incarceration has its roots in racism because of our economic and our social biases. Um, the mass incarceration is based solely on social economic um, factors. Uh, if the marginalized communities around California were filled with white people, prison would be filled with white people. It just happens to be the feeding ground for mass incarceration. Mm, they yes. have uh, these very vulnerable, uh, poor people living in the marginalized communities that they needed bodies to fill these beds to create this correctional economy that they have in California, and that's where they went to get them. And it just so happened that... Um, because of my marginalized background, because uh, we had no money, because uh, I was basically without um, a support system, and my sisters as well, uh, we were we were vulnerable to the system that was uh, clutching these bodies and dragging them in for their their own economic well. And also, uh, I mean, having lived in California all of this time that we're talking about pretty much um, such a fear 
mentality. When I was watching the film about you, uh, I highly recommend it to people, a film on, on K, that KQED uh, did um, about, about your experience. What struck me was that uh, I was remembering what a fear mentality there was and that if a crime happened, you know, they would, the criminal justice system would want to quickly punish somebody. Uh, You know, not that that's changed that much, but I think it was particularly intense at that time. That's my, you know, my feeling about it. And that they really rushed to judgment in your particular case. Mm -hmm. Can you can you talk about the case some for people that don't know what happened? Well, in in 1974, uh, there was a. Uh, a young girl named Kathy Riley who was found murdered at a park near our house. Um, back up a couple steps. Uh, I had just gotten a job as a security guard. Uh, I was, um, I was, uh, like I said, taking care of my three sisters. My mother was in the hospital. Uh, and I would go to work. Uh, I had two shifts every day. I, I'd go to work in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I'd go home, check on the girls, and uh, uh, I would go to Livermore and see my girlfriend, and then I would go from her house to work on another shift, on the graveyard shift. And um, uh, one of the places that I worked at was a Bell potato chip factory, and they had this practice of loading up the trucks full of... Um, snack cakes and potato chips and they would back the trailer up to a cyclone fence that was adjacent to a field and they would come in the morning with other trucks and they would pick up the trailers and they would drive them where they're going. So myself and another security guard were in the habit of when we worked the shift, uh, I would jump over the cyclone fence uh, on the other side of the field, go through the field, which had vegetation about chest high. Uh, and the sun never hit the ground. It was like a marsh in there. Uh, but uh, I would jump the fence and go across the field and get over the other side of the cyclone fence and open the back of the trailer. And I would take cases of potato chips home to my sisters so we'd have <laughs> potato chips to eat or whatever, snack cakes. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I did this two or three different times. And I would get uh, wet and I would get muddy going across the field. My shoes would get muddy. And um, I would take them off and put them on the back porch and I would get another pair uh, and put them on. And my sister would clean up the the uh, pair I'd leave on the porch eventually. And so I always had a clean pair somewhere. And uh, uh, this one day I went to uh, the park near our house. Uh, I'd just gotten off work. I stopped at the park to see this girl named Linda and uh, I get there, and she's not there. So on the way back to my car, I see uh, Cassie Riley, and I say, hey, have you seen Linda? She said, yeah, she's at the basketball court. So we walk back to the basketball court. She's not there, so I leave. I'm out of my car maybe 8 to 11 minutes. That's how long I'm out of my car. Mm. Uh, I go to Livermore, and... Uh, when I got to my car and got in, there was a cop 
car behind me uh, writing something down. So I get in my car, I drive away, and this cop car starts following me. And I'm like, oh, crap. The cop behind me. And I just got that car. I don't have a driver's license. I don't have insurance. I don't have registration. I'm just this teenager with a a 62 Lincoln Continental that I just got from some guy at work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm envisioning losing this car. And so I look back again and the cop car is gone. It turns out that she called my license plate in at 536. And then she got called to a robbery. So she pulls off and she leaves. That, that in the 42 years later, that time that she called in turned out to be critical in, in our reconstruction of the time frame that this murder happened but um of so cassie correct the next day they found huh of cassie yes yes yeah yes. so um uh i go to livermore the next day uh cassie riley is found murdered in the park and uh we didn't know until years later that um uh, she had just broken up with her boyfriend and that uh, one of the suspects in the crime, which they withheld from my public defender at the time, was her boyfriend, who's now on death row for killing another young woman. Uh, they think he may have killed four people in the 27 years between the time I went to prison for the crime that he committed and uh, the time they eventually got him for another murder and put him on death row. So... um uh, they 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 find Cassie Riley dead in the park, and they start looking around to see if anybody had seen anything or knew anything. Well, we saw Cassie talking to this guy, and uh, eventually the police officer said, well, "I remember seeing a car there that was parked illegally, and this is the car." And so they put a, an ad in the paper saying, uh, "Anybody knowing anything about a car?" that looks like this with a guy that looks like this. Give us a call. He's a material witness. So my sister ends up calling and telling the police, oh, that's my brother. He knows something he doesn't even know. He knows it. So Mm. they come down and uh, Cassie Riley was killed next to a waterway. And so the person that killed Cassie Riley had to get wet because she was drowned in this creek. They find these shoes on my back porch with mud on them. These are, these are black leather dress shoes from my uniform. Right. Uh, at the time of the trial, it really didn't concern me that they had these muddy shoes because the person that committed the crime was wearing tennis shoes, according to the forensics at the scene. The, the can we, can, I, can I break in? Stars. Can I break in there, Marvin? Because it's time for a break Mm -hmm. and I don't want to rush this at all. So um, let's come back right back to that. uh, You you knowing that those were not your shoes. Let's come back to that when we're done with the break. Okay. Uh, and and listeners, you can find links on my website and social media at the Voice Voice America page for Good Grief uh, to like me, follow me, all of that. To find Marvin Much, you can go to humaneprisonhospiceproject.org or prisonerreentrynetwork.org. Be back soon. Mm-hmm. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Marvin Much. He was wrongly convicted of murder at 19. He spent 41 years in prison, and while he was there, he worked uh, as a as a um, prisoner advocate, did a lot of, of work to improve conditions, conditions uh, in San Quentin, and continues, now that he's been released, to work for uh, to reform the the justice system and and the prison system, and Marvin, before the break, we were talking about the the crime you were accused of and wrongly convicted up of and put in prison for. Um, you were at the point of of saying that um, there were, as I would put it, um, circumstantial. Uh, factors that led them in your direction, but actually were not conclusive whatsoever, and they kind of jumped to the conclusion that you had murdered this young woman, but it really stood out. You were just saying that um, they found mud on your shoes, which made sense, but Mm. they weren't the same type of shoes, which doesn't make sense that they would not 
pay any attention to that. Do you have any way of understanding why that was not a factor in their thinking, that the shoes didn't match? Well, uh, it was 1975, and it was a very unspecialized time in um, uh, uh, criminal law, and and, uh, they didn't have CSI, and the rest of that uh, really uh, developed to the point that they have it today. Uh, the fact is, is that they do, they did have pictures of the crime scene and they did have plaster casts that showed that the person who perpetrated this crime was wearing Converse All-Stars of a different size than I wore. And um, the fact that I was seen at the park that day, along with a hundred other people, uh, should not have um, uh, driven anybody to the uh, conclusion that, that I was the person responsible for that crime. It, that's what it turned out. And uh, why well, I said it was important that the officer had had um, had called in the time that I left the area at 536 because the victim was seen alive uh, well after 6 o'clock uh, by friends. And um, at, uh, we didn't know it at the time, but uh, there was a, a couple that lived uh, near the park who at uh, around seven o'clock that night heard this, this scream that caused them so much concern. They got up from their, their dinner table and they went outside of their house to the front yard to see if somebody had been hit by a car. That's how tragic the scream was. Uh, they didn't see anything. They went back in. Well, the next day the body of Cassie Riley was found 50 yards from their back door. Uh, and so they actually pinpointed the time of the crime just by this, um, uh, by this scream that they heard and, and noting the time that, that they had heard it. So a lot of things, uh, uh, could have pointed in a far different direction than they did had they just chose to follow them up, but that didn't happen. And years later, uh, when the, uh, Northern, when the, uh, Golden Gate University Innocence Project and the USC Post-Conviction Justice Project started working on my case. Um, they were able to find a lot of things that my attorney later looked at and said he hadn't seen 75% of those at the time of the trial. So uh, uh, at the end, it turned out that uh, the prosecutor that prosecuted me in 1975 uh he ended up writing to Arnold Schwarzenegger. He wrote to the to the uh, pro board and said that uh, over the years his uh, uh, his record was seventy five cases of murder tried to juries, all resulted in convictions. And he said this case was the one he had the most doubts about over the years, and told the board that they should let me out of prison. And so um, it was quite remarkable to that this person who uh, prided uh, himself and his record of being undefeated would come out and say something like that. Absolutely. And I, and I to, know you from, really have to from, listen to the podcast and watch the, uh, uh, there's a podcast on Dr. Thaddeus Russell did uh, a podcast on the unauthorized podcast uh, show that he does. Uh, about, uh, and it's just called Marvin Much, 
uh, I think I sent you a link. Uh, yeah. And um, that that has most of the detail. If people wanted to listen to it, it's, it's a lengthy podcast, and then you can watch a documentary. You know, one thing I was uh, thinking about, which I do... Um, I've had a close friend in prison and my my a very close friend's son and so I've thought a lot about about it and of course and sat in in visiting rooms and of course um it doesn't just affect the people that are actually in prison uh I was I was so moved by your sister who of course had no uh sense that she was condemning you um, right. when she called, but that must have been so much for her, for her to live with, to have been yeah. part of how this how this happened. Um, yeah, we, we, our family still hasn't recovered from that. I've never held uh, not one moment of animosity towards her or anybody else, uh, and uh, she still carries the burden today. She, you know, anytime you have a system that creates more victims than it started with, it's broken. And uh, she definitely was victimized by this process. And um, uh, and and so she, and so now you're a 19 year old. You know, also uh, it's of note to me a 19 year old who was responsible for other people. Um, mm-hmm. You were taking care of your sisters, and so then you can't do that anymore. You're unavailable to right. them. That must have been a weight to carry, particularly. At the start, when they were, I assume, younger right. than you, and you were right. So well, they took um, complete advantage of that during the process. That you know, they ended up uh, putting my sister attempted suicide when when she found that um, uh, I'd been arrested and that uh, she felt that she was the cause of it. She tried to commit suicide, and they put her in juvenile hall. And eventually, they went to juvenile hall and told her, well, we believe that you're in danger, so we're going to move you. And they moved my teenage sister out of juvenile hall into the home of the district attorney's investigator, where she stayed for three months until my trial. Uh, totally unheard of. Something that I have never uh, heard of since. Uh, yeah, I, just, I, can't, I can't even imagine. I mean, I can right. because I've, I know your story, but uh, that's just so... Um, Mm-hmm. immoral really mm-hmm. um so now you're 19 you're in prison you didn't expect to go because you didn't do it you're i'm right. assume i'm assuming quite emotionally unprepared and re- right. um regardless of a tough beginning um not a criminal beginning so <laughs> you know not well, I, a was lot no, of- I was no angel i was a runaway quite a bit i i learned in foster care that that uh, if I did not like the situation I was in, I would run away from it. And uh, uh, it was just uh, something that where I was going, I don't know, I was just going. And uh, so um, when, I, when I got arrested and convicted and then sent to San Quentin, uh, I immediately went to the law library because I knew that the law had put me in prison. And I figured if I could just reverse engineer that process, I could find my way out. And so I started studying the law books and uh, I joined the prisoners union and I became an activist and an organizer. Uh, For the first three years I was in prison, I I was a member of the prisoners union. In 77, when the prisoners union imploded, 
there was a big fight out in the Bay Area over union dues, and the guys out there in the city were putting guns in each other's mouths, and it was just crazy. So um, I took the platform for the prisoners' union and revived a failed uh, uh, grievance system that the warden had started years before. I, I revived that. I married the prisoners' union platform to the failed diversionary grievance system that they had and created the Men's Advisory Council. And uh, we wanted to have elections, which, of course, the warden thought was a ridiculous contention. And uh, so we had to go to court, and the courts uh, ordered that we be allowed to have elections, and I was elected to chair of the first council in the state of this new, uh, uh, newly resurrected uh, um, body. And uh, I was reelected for 38 years. And uh, uh, we, at the height of its population, represented the collective grievances of 174,000 prisoners. We advocated for everything from uh, food, uh, community standard health care, higher education, uh, humane treatment, uh, you name it. We, were, we had our hands in it. And... Uh, I, I believe that uh, we were successful in in changing the culture, at least at the place where I was at. And, and eventually, as San Quentin goes, the rest of the system goes. And so we were successful in bringing uh, uh, some light to the darkness uh, and, and let I, the, the yeah. fellas know I, that, there's a, that they are part of a system that, that, that um, uh, they don't have to re- resort to their usual tools of violence and, and uh, insurrection, they can, they can go to somebody who can advocate for them and try to get things done through the proper channels. That's interesting because I, I'm in a choir that sings in the, in the prisons, um, and I've sung at San Quentin and Santa Rita and San Francisco County Jail. And I would say that San, San Quentin... Um, had a, I don't know, I guess I want to say a more humane feel somehow, which was very surprising to me. Um, but right. it, it is what I experienced. Being, being and it, that they it kill people of, there. But I'm sorry? They, yeah, it's, it's surprising being that they kill people there. Yes, yes, but something it's about, there, yeah. you know, people were allowed to interact in ways that at the um, at the county jails uh, they were not so maybe that's well, what that wasn't what, always the case and, but and that's what I, that's why I brought it up because was, it sounds yeah it sounds as if you made a real difference with that you and and your the people you were um, working with and well it was you a know, collective it was a collective thing yeah 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 um, I would imagine but I also imagine that at the beginning that must have made you a bit of a target because I can't imagine Mm -hmm. that guards wanted you to do that, wanted you to have a prisoner's union or advocate for your rights or um, given that time, I'm guessing they did not. Would that be fair to say? I was fortunate. Well, maybe unfortunately, uh, uh, I I went to prison at a time when uh, the California Correctional Officers Association uh, 
was just this fledgling group of guards that were making very little money and didn't have any political power in California. It wasn't until uh, this guy named Don Novi took over the Correctional Officers Association and uh, lobbied to make them peace officers, first of all, which was a brilliant move. Uh, they became peace officers, which which brought them into a salary range commensurate with other police uh, organizations in the state, mm-hmm. uh, gave them protections that they didn't have as security guards, and um, and built that union into the powerhouse lobby that it is uh, uh, today. Uh, so at the time that I was growing our, our uh, advisory council, we didn't have a powerful opposition. Uh, they could not like it all they want. And... And uh, there was uh, 140,000 prisoners, right? So uh, we were uh, we were we were just trying to we weren't asking for back rubs, you know, uh, right, right, or you know, uh, something out of the ordinary. We were asking to be treated humanely and to get food that that you could eat without getting sick, and and uh, if you were sick, to have doctors that would take care of you and. Uh, the chance to uh, come in at 19 years old and eventually leave with some type of uh, uh, college degree or something that w- that would sustain your life going forward. And so these are things that it, uh, uh, took um, a lot of time, a lot of effort from a lot of people in a lot of prisons. Mm-hmm. And eventually uh, we were able to, to, to change the culture. Uh, they found that it was synergenic to... Um, bring the prisoners into these programs and have these programs flourish because uh, the violence was not just inwardly directed to, towards uh, the prisoners themselves. Uh, they, they weren't just turning on each other. They were turning on the guards as well. And they were, right. it was, it was a very dark place. And so uh, once we were able to turn that uh, tide of violence, uh, the, the more reasonable people, the moderate people that ran the department of corrections would say, this is a good thing. Good thing. It will help everyone. It's time for our second break. And, of course, 41 years and plus the two two or so years since you've been released is a long time to cover. But uh, I, I guess I would say you continue to go in this direction of advocacy and, and help. And when we get back, I'd really like to talk about some of the more um, – uh, emotional support oriented programs that you were a part of creating and then the work sure. you're doing now that you've now that you're out out of prison so let's let's sure. talk about that when we get back and uh, listeners you can go to weatheringgrief.com that's my website or the good grief host page to find Marvin much you can go to the humane humane prison and prisonerreentrynetwork.org Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Marvin Much of the Humane Prison Hospice Project. And Marvin, before the uh, the break, um, we got as far as the kind of advocacy work you did when you were first incarcerated. And uh, of course, mm-hmm. that might be shocking to some people that you so quickly figured out a way to... Um, respond to that situation that wasn't just uh, kind of abject um, depression, you know, that you found right. work of meaning for yourself. That's probably a whole other show we could have, but it, it really stands right. out to me that you did that. But I wanted to kind of um, fast forward a little bit to uh, the way in which uh, the work you're doing now, one of the things you're very involved with in terms of hospice and end of life training for people who are incarcerated and, you know, um, really looking at the emotional experience of being incarcerated. Um, 
I'd, I'd like you to talk some about how that came about and what came of it and, um, you know, just that part of your work. All right. And maybe somewhere um, along in there, share share the um, the story of of one person who experienced uh, the difficulties of end of life in prison. You can just take the floor and <laughs> tell us okay. everything. Well, um, in two thousand and five, uh, I had a friend named Robert Dubner that. Uh, I ate uh, breakfast and dinner every day in a chow hall with for 17 years. I mean, uh, we're very good friends. And uh, we shared meals together twice a day, every day. And um, uh, I had an office uh, that the prison was compelled to let us have uh, where prisoners could come with their grievances and have some privacy to talk about things that they were experiencing and, uh, and look for advocacy without having to worry about being overheard. So, um, this one morning in 2005, I ate breakfast with Robert Dubner and we talked about the politics of the day. And, uh, I went to my office, uh, to start my day and he went back to the cell block to wait for the yard to open uh, and go down and exercise. Uh, Robert never went to the exercise yard that morning because he went back to his cell and committed suicide. And so um, I could not understand how this person who I ate meals with for 17 years, who I loved, frankly, I loved, uh, who how he could be an hour away from making such a fatal and final decision, and I had not seen it. So I uh, wrote letters. I I tried to find an organization or somebody to come in and teach us how to recognize uh, the signs of somebody who's going through this type of thing. And we found a group called um, Bay Wars, Bay Area Women Against Rape, uh, they came in, uh, uh, Diane Banyan and Marsha Blackstock, uh, they came in and they gave us an 18-month course in suicide prevention, crisis intervention, and we became state certified, uh, myself and 12 other people, uh, got the certification, and uh, we created a group called Brothers Keepers. Uh, where we um, uh, we found out during the psychological autopsy that the state did is that uh, people, especially life prisoners who are experiencing depression and suicidal thought, are not going to self-identify to the prison uh, administrators or to the psychologists that work at the prison because they put this information in your file. And then when you go to the parole board, you get denied because you have psychological issues. So they just don't self-identify. So we found that if we created this group of peer assessors, um, that they would be more likely to come and say, hey, can we go down and take a few laps around the yard? I need to talk to you. And so um, uh, we went from... Uh, San Quentin had a suicide rate six times the national average. Mm. And uh, 
we after Brothers Keepers was was um, formed and uh, uh, functioning inside San Quentin, we went to zero. And uh, do you mean zero suicides or zero, zero percent more than the general population? Zero, zero, zero suicides. Nobody. Uh, uh, it wow. Just, it just was remarkable the effect, uh, and in um, in two thousand, yeah, two thousand, the end of two thousand, and or the beginning of two thousand six, the first brothers keepers uh, uh, were uh, established, and uh, there's still several of the original brothers keepers still in prison, and um, that's a whole nother thing you could do a show about as well as absolutely uh, you know what what is what is crime and what is punishment and what are we doing what are we doing uh, in california with these prisons but uh the uh brothers keepers uh were primarily uh peer intercessors who were available for people to talk about um their depression or their ideation uh to talk about crisis as it comes up. We, we also got training in male sexual assault survivor counseling. Uh, we found that um, uh, a lot of these people in prison that, that uh, turned out to be uh, violent uh, perpetrators in, in their adult life were assaulted as young children. And, uh, mm, yes. uh, and some, there were some people in prison that were assaulted uh, that needed counseling and they didn't want to talk to anybody. Uh, we were able to provide this as well. Uh, and so, um, in 2008, I was involved in a pretty bitter, um, uh, a long and protracted, uh, battle with, um, the guards union. And, uh, we had just had a major shakedown of our block where a lot of our legal work and everything, uh, our property were, were destroyed and thrown away. And so I was assisting the population in getting reparation for all of this. And, uh, uh, I was, uh, targeted by some rogue members of the guards union. They were blogging online about how, uh, why are we messing with this guy? Why don't we just have the skinheads take him out? And, uh, or, you know, have somebody, you know, kill him. And uh, shortly after this blog came out, uh, I was assaulted on the third tier of North Block, knocked out and thrown down from the third tier. I ended up in pretty bad shape. I, I was sent to the medical facility in Vacaville to rehabilitate. And while I was there, uh, I became aware of the state's only extant prison hospice. Uh, there are 16 beds in Vacaville that have been, uh, this program's been running for quite a while and it's very successful. Uh, individuals who are told that they have six months to live uh, qualify to be in this hospice uh, and their families can come and sit with them uh, at the time of their death. And if they don't have family, there's uh, their uh, cellmate or their, their friend uh, from prison or uh, a prisoner volunteer can sit 
sit with them at the time of their death so nobody dies alone. And uh, I became a great supporter of that program. I thought it was just remarkable. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Wayne Cobb, that I'd known for a long time, uh, somebody told me, hey, Wayne Cobb is here at the prison. I said, where's he at? So they told me. I went there. I told him, what is this place? And they said, it's hospice. Turns out that that Wayne uh, had some type of a mass that he, he was a, a Vietnam War veteran and uh, Agent Orange had caused some type of a thing with his lungs that eventually ended up killing him. But um, uh, he, his family was in Battle Creek, Michigan. He didn't have anybody. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to have his friends around him at the time of his death, uh, which is, is very important. The, the one thing that most people in prison are, are, are most afraid of is dying alone in prison. And so, um, and, the, and that's so, uh, that's so um, much of a growing issue with all the people who, for instance, were thrown in for three strikes and, um, right. you know, it's an aging population, isn't it? Exactly. And so, um, uh, when I was, uh, uh, I was able to, to, uh, eventually be released from prison. It was a long process. I, in 2006, the Innocence Project and, uh, Professor Rutberg from, uh, Golden Gate University Innocence Project went to the board. I was in a very bad appellate district. I couldn't get any action. Uh, with the conservative judges that I had. So they decided to take this actual innocence presentation and brought it to the board. And the board recommended my release. And 48 hours before I was supposed to get out, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger exercised his discretion to reverse the board, and I stayed another 10 years. In 2016, they did it again. And this time, uh, Governor Brown uh, released me. And so um, uh, I get out and uh, I left a lot of people behind that. Um, I don't know you when know, I walked out of the prison. A, it's, it's like um, I was afraid to leave, but uh, right. uh, I left the prison. I left a lot of people behind that, that I was still um, very attached to and concerned about and uh, decided I needed to do something out here to continue what I was doing inside. So, um, I ended up, uh, interacting with a guy named Jared Rudolph, uh, from the prison reentry network. And eventually I became his director of advocacy. Uh, and, and I know Marvin, um, God, we're out of time. I can't believe it. Um, we didn't get to half what we wanted to, but I know that you're working diligently to try to get hospice in more prisons, for instance, and right. maybe well, you'll come with, back with again as that fish. goes along. Lady we're going to have to say goodbye Lady for today, though. Next week, and I'll have... I'm sorry, we're out of time. Next week, I'll have Alua Arthur, a death doula. She founded the program Going With Grace to support end-of-life planning. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.